0: Back makes it easy to spend, send, and earn crypto. With BAC, you can earn $1 in Bitcoin per day when you pay using your back card with Apple Pay. Tap into crypto from December 15th through the 24th and score up to $10 in Bitcoin. Terms and conditions apply. Learn more at Back.com Applepay. earn more with your crypto on Kava. Kava is a fully integrated, decentralized finance platform that puts the power of lending, borrowing and trading in the hands of users. Find out how you can take control of your crypto and earn industry leading yields at kava.io today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And today on the show, we have a very special guest joining us on the other side of the mic. I think this is either his fourth or fifth time with us on the program. I I didn't count before we started recording. Sam Bankman-Fried, CEO of FTX and of course the founder of Alameda Research. Sam, I was thinking about In the sort of weeks leading up to having you on, how on so many previous episodes, we kind of focus on a specific topic, whether it's market structure or the differences between the ecosystem in Asia versus here in North America or in Europe. We've gotten granular on non-podcast related topics about frothiness in the venture world, but we've never really had a full kind of conversation looking at the entire story of FTX. I think we just always immediately go right into the meat. So I wanted to take this opportunity not only to reflect back on the year, which has been a crazy year for FTX here at the block and the market broadly, but I also wanted to do some reflection on the growth of the firm itself. So appreciate you coming on. We'll obviously get into some of those wonky pedantic topics as well, but I'm excited to sort of dive a bit more broadly, so to speak, and have you on.
1: Well, thanks for the uh, the questions, Representative Shapiro. I really appreciate it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I I was actually thinking about that when you and the other folks were speaking down at Capitol Hill, and I remember being um, in D.C. for the Libra hearings, and I don't know if I'd have the patience to sort of like they weren't grilling you guys too hard, but if I was being grilled to sort of like just sit there and take it. It's really a, a, a Herculean <laughs> task. Um, maybe I'm just a little too unrefined. But in any case, I was speaking with Larry earlier this week about the FTX story. And I've tweeted about this. I don't know if I've ever talked to you about it, but even in those like Hasley on early days of the bear market, you guys were kind of emerging. FTX is a firm out of Alameda. And there was a lot of noise. There was a lot of questions and skeptical takes out there. And frankly, there were a lot of people trying to spread these really strange rumors about (laughs) how FTX had to come out of Alameda as a sort of moonshot bet to save this firm that wasn't doing very well or owed money to big whales. Let's start in those early days. Why did FTX ultimately get launched out of Alameda? And what do you think the forces were behind, I don't use this word a lot, but behind this FUD? What was going on at the time?
1: So, yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of things that were coming together there. I think that maybe first talking about how I think it, it felt internally, like what we what was actually going through our minds and, and then a little bit about what, what I think was probably going through other people's minds. You know, when we sort of thought about about launching FTX, well, or I guess even before that, like, why why did we even start thinking about launching it in the first, like, like, you know, what was step one of that thought process? I think basically like we were, you know, it's I went year trading with Alameda. So this is late 2018. And you look at the exchanges in crypto circa then. And on the one hand, they were like, they were just making a lot of money. However you define it, they were doing extremely well. And so that, that was sort of like, was one piece of it was just like, wow, these exchanges are making a lot of money. Maybe we should start one. But they're, I mean, Amazon's making a lot of money. And, and so is Apple. And we're not ramping up mobile phone production plants yet, nor are we removing connectors from FTX for no particular reason. And so so, so, it wasn't like literally just like, well, there exists a business that's doing well. What it really was, was saying, well, okay, here's a business which they're doing very well. They're making probably a billion plus a year collectively at the time, which we understand deeply. You know, this wasn't a sort of like, like I have no fucking clue how physical supply chains work. Is like an, the honest answer, right? Like if I had to build Amazon, right? Like step one is like get something shipped to a warehouse. I, I, don't, I don't know, right? Like I don't even, I don't even really know where kind of how to start that conversation. Do I have to go bald? Right. You know, maybe that's, maybe there's a reason for it. And if there were, we wouldn't know, right? It's not like I'm, I'd be like, well, yeah, no, I can't think of any reason for going bald. There, so That's clearly not relevant. To the business model, it's more like, well, I mean, I'm, I am, you know, I, I guess, like, I, I don't see why that would be true, but there are a lot of things I don't see. So, you know, maybe, maybe it's important. Um, And so so I think that sort of is one important piece of context there, which is that like there are businesses that were doing well and that we kind of felt like, all right, you know, we could probably build this, you know, like I, I can sort of think about how one would do that. And the other thing, which is super important there was, was that you know, and you just generically doing well. If you look at sort of the exchanges and the fact that like we understood how to build a matching engine, they were just not well built. They like, the, the number of problems they had were enormous. You know, everything from like losing a million dollars a day of customer funds. And that, that was sort of like the biggest and most egregious thing at the time. And that was just the risk engines. They mm-hmm. just didn't work. And, and you could see why it wasn't like, I guess that's the mysterious nature of risk engines that they just don't work. Like, it's sort of like, well, okay, like, we see how they executed that liquidation. That seemed like really dumb. And then they reported that they lost money on it. And you're kind of like, well, duh, <laughs> that's what happens when that's how you execute liquidations is they don't work. And so I think we sort of felt like, like, we understood it pretty deeply, like it wasn't working. We knew why it wasn't working. It's was just kind of like, yeah, obviously, that's not going to work. And that we felt like, really compelled that we could do something better. And so... You know, we sort of stood there looking at these products that, like, we understood deeply were doing very well and were built very poorly, and just felt like, how can we not compete with that? Like, you know, it's almost like an itch, I guess, that that we sort of had scratch of like, notice a thing that's doing weirdly poorly and, and like, you know, go and try and do it better. And, and that was like, you know, that combined with then just saying, all right. Let's just like do some math here, you know, like let's just say like what is the expected value of you know, if we were were to do something here, what what would its expected value be? And you know, I don't think it's like a trivial thing to do to calculate that, but you know, you could start sort of say, look, we know how much these businesses are making. It's an incredibly transparent business model, it's a lot. And, you know, we think that we could do build a good product. We think our odds of success are non-trivial i don't know exactly how high but like definitely not like close to zero right and so fuck it let's do it that was like basically the chain of logic there and you know i think our calculation basically like 80 percent chance we fail to ever get a user if we do get users then like i don't know 50 percent chance that it goes pretty well and and already you can start to see like well you multiply those together you know you look at like how much it's worth if it does well and and you just you end up with a big number is sort of like where that ends. And so that, that was sort of where we were coming from there. And, and it's just that pretty clean, straightforward calculation. And in the end, we sort of stress tested that a bit internally. And, you know, what we ultimately decided is it's just correct. There's nothing weird going on there. That is the correct way to think about it. That is the correct calculation. What that implies is correct. And we should do it.
0: So you kind of illustrated what? The bear case was when identifying whether or not this was a smart business decision or a smart business to launch. I'm looking at this report from 2019 where you told our reporter at the time, this was one of the first reports to go out about FTX that if this does go right, so the other side of the coin, we're looking at probably a billion dollars in trading volume a day. That was in your mind a very successful scenario for ftx yep i just checked for november which was a slower month than others in the year ftx clocked in for just futures volumes maybe it's just just bitcoin futures volumes 144 billion a day so we ended up getting to that more lofty goal (laughs) (laughs) yep and so passing it in some instances
1: yeah i mean it things ended up going so much better than we thought they even could. And I think it's an interesting question of why, like, did we get something wrong there? And I'm kind of not sure exactly what the answer is to that of whether we got something wrong and should have realized that it might go massively better than it did. You know, I think some of this is that like, you know, I basically think that like it was, I think we, we f- certainly just got lucky to crypto going on. Like that was clearly yeah. a big piece of this, that we didn't sort of like from first principles derive that that was going to happen. In fact, we even really consider it a likely possibility that it would go up nearly as much as it did. If you remove that factor, right, if you take a factor of five out of everything, then you're looking at something that looks more like slightly more successful than I think our, our sort of like successful case.
0: Well, I would venture to guess that that conservative original outlook is tied to a degree of your, I wouldn't say lack of enthusiasm, but your more sort of, you know, more reserved overall view of crypto, at least at that time. You weren't necessarily some sort of evangelist, right? So you clearly saw a business opportunity in taking market share from exchanges that were not executing as well as you thought you could execute, but you didn't necessarily envision a 10x, 100x opportunity in what crypto could do, perhaps, or maybe at least Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, I think that's sort of fair. You know, I think that, like, I was excited about it, but I, I think I was still learning about it, frankly, at the time. Like, I was not an expert on crypto when that happened. You know, it's far from that. And, and I think that showed to some extent. And, uh, and I think that it, it would be a while before I was anything closer to an expert
0: there. Okay, so you have this situation where you have a former Jane Street trader. He's not necessarily an expert. He's he's a self-admitted non-expert in crypto per se, an expert in trading technology, perhaps. And yet you still have folks back then that were really afraid, right? I mean, like I said, we got these high profile tips from multiple people that there was something going on and FTX was the bailout. Why do you think that there was this backdrop of fud? And maybe I'm just overblowing it because I was in the center of it. But it seems strange, especially when juxtaposed with the success. And I don't want you know to poo-poo those naysayers too much or uh, hype you up too much. But I find it very fascinating. Like, you know, were you in the background, kind of pushing people out of the way or rubbing people the wrong way? Rather, what was going on?
1: It's an interesting question, and. You know, we felt this very much internally where, you know, we did see that. And it was like one of the bigger things that we had to contend with early on um, and that we had to to address. But at the same time, you know, it's obviously a little bit harder to address given that we didn't feel like we knew exactly even what or why it was. But I, I think, you know, in retrospect, what was going on there, you know, I think a lot of this is, first of all, it was a pivot that people just didn't do much right? Like almost independent of whether it would have been, whether it was like the right pivot, it was a weird pivot. And like, I think it's like not usual for people to have like a successful business and then be like, yeah, let's just start another business. You know, why not? Why why, why just one business? Right. And, and I mean, I, I felt really compelled by the vision of doing it, but it's something, you know, frankly, there's a lot of pushback internally about that. You know, a lot of people are like, wait, why are we doing this? You know, like, why don't we just focus on trading? Trading seems to be going well. And so I think that was a part of this. And then, you know, I, I think other things here that probably contributed to it. Well, if you sort of look at like, you know, we put this, like, you know, you look at, I mean, I think there are some ways in which is sort of tailor-made to cause a lot of questions. You know, one thing which is sort of weird was that Alameda, until fairly recently, as of then, didn't have much of a reputation. like most people didn't know who alameda was until like slightly before then and i think that like one sort of like obvious interpretation of that was like what the fuck is going on here like you know company we've never heard of all of a sudden claims to be doing extremely well and also pivoting at the same time like that's that's kind of an odd story you know Mm -hmm. and
0: i think that like
1: that didn't exactly cohere to a lot of people
0: and led the breeding ground for all sorts of different rumors or speculations to arise That's right
1: and almost rather than trying to think about like why particular speculations or rumors arose I think a lot of this is just like well yeah I don't know with that backdrop it's kind of not surprising so I think that's like <laughs> that that's really a big piece of this and then I think another thing which is super relevant here is that you know, you, you sort of look back then, and like there's this no press, and all of a sudden there's this ton of press. There's a simultaneous like rotation in focus, even as people like you know before people even sort of learned what the prior focus was, like it was almost happening in sort of like mm-hmm. more than real time or something, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so I think that was sort of feeding into this sort of general confusion in messaging as well. And then I think the last thing was like people didn't know us as a team there wasn't like particular trust or reason to trust us i think for a lot of people like we're very much sort of new quantities and so there is no like you know yeah okay sure but like these are you know these are people who know what they're doing and sort of like execute well and are honest or have a reputation or or anything like
0: that the notoriety wasn't there the original characters at alameda and so maybe there was sort of the original OGs in the market on the trading and exchange side just were very skeptical.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's most of it. It's sort of like starting from a prior of like, this sounds kind of weird and like a lot of things I'm skeptical of. It's like, yeah, I'm kind of skeptical of this one, you know?
0: I think like also there was a degree of skepticism about the business in, itself or the sort of relationship between the two firms. And obviously now they're, you know, officially – fairly separate and the leadership is now very separate, right? I think you are now solely focused on FTX or at least very yep. much focused on FTX. But let's maybe double click on that, right? Even still today, there might be some traders who speculate on, you know, is Alameda dumping certain prop positions to retail customers on FTX? Does Alameda have any sort of special access or connectivity to FTX relative to other market makers. And this isn't just a question that's FTX specific, right? Like if you think of the way that the traditional markets operate, it's much more bifurcated, right? A custodian is a custodian, an exchange is an exchange. And even something like a Coinbase has an OTC trading desk, but they didn't at the time, at least I don't think they necessarily did. So it may be in that respect, the sort of connectivity between those two firms seems strange. But if you think about that, should it? And how would you respond to maybe critics who say Alameda might have this special access?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, part of this is, I mean, honestly, part of it is like, you know, just a collection of small things put together, you know, around our our track record and, you know, but we've also tried to do as many things as we can think of to address this. One sort of random examples is getting audits for FTX. So we we now have, you know, gap audits ongoing for FTX and and FTX US. We've completed those for 2020. Um, Hopefully we'll have 2021 audits coming out in, you know, early 2022. You know, another thing is getting regulated. And Zooming back a few years, there weren't a whole lot of licenses one could get globally um for crypto. there still aren't nearly as many as there sort of should be. like it still is the case that in a lot of jurisdictions there's nothing built out, but there's at least something in an increasing number of jurisdictions, and you know we're you know we're now licensed in a large number of jurisdictions, including you know Europe broadly, including the United States. Australia, you know, anticipating a few other large jurisdictions to be joining that before the end of the year, and so I think that's sort of a uh, that's a big step in that direction as well for us. And you know, just in general, we want to do whatever we can to make people feel comfortable with the platform, sort of whatever that means.
0: Yeah. So there's this sort of newfound regulatory oversight, and are they looking for things like you know, obviously they are, but just to sort of get it on the record, conflicts of interest or Or this sort of special access that makes certain traders anxious or question the the business there?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a conversation we've had with a number of regulators about who we are, about FTX and about Alameda. It's something that, you know, it it comes up in in a lot of our conversations. And it's also something where we have started to put in place a while ago and, and have continued doing so. A number of measures to specifically address that, too. You know, doing things like having constant monitoring of you know whether there's anything unusual about Alameda's you know volume or fraction of volume or revenue or anything like that on FTX. And you know, we report not just overall revenue, but we also through our audits, you know, go through where did that come from? You know, we and Alameda's fraction of volume has been dropping pretty steadily, pretty consistently. And you know, we've put in place a number of you know sort of the standard you know, physical separation and, and, and things like that between FTX and Alameda. And then a big piece of this also was, you know, finally getting to a place where I could remove myself from day-to-day operations at Alameda, which, you know, I think really came to be over the last, you know, the last year or so. But I think Alameda got to a place as a firm where it has great leadership without me and doesn't need me to be there.
0: You might be in the middle of a shopping scramble for last-minute gifts and thinking, wouldn't it be nice to buy some of them with crypto? Well, your time has come. Before you make your next purchase, consider backed. Back makes it easy to spend crypto, and today through December 24th, you can earn one dollar in Bitcoin each day you pay using the Back card with Apple Pay. Not to mention, you can load your Back card with crypto and use some of that virtual value for holiday gifting. Earn crypto when you pay using the back card with Apple Pay from December 15th through the 24th and score up to $10 in Bitcoin rewards for twice the nice. Terms and conditions apply. Learn more at back.com slash Apple Pay. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now, with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go, 24-7. Simply download the Kraken app, connect your bank account, and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. Are you ready to take your crypto earnings to the next level? Kava is a fully integrated, decentralized finance platform that combines institutional-grade security and user-driven design. Lend, borrow, and trade your crypto all in one seamless experience. Find out how you can take control of your crypto and earn industry-leading reward APYs at kava.io today. I want to move into the sort of marketing story here or the, the community outreach aspect of what has made FTX so successful. You were a trading savant at heart when this whole sort of story un, unfolded, not necessarily known for being some sort of marketing whiz. Did you have a background or any sort of background in marketing or, or anything like that?
1: Absolutely not.
0: Yeah. And And so how did that come together? I mean, people know, right? People are going to know the Tom Brady, are you in campaign or, or just the memes on Twitter. But who's that? Is that coming from you? And did you have a journey where you figured out how to become a good marketer? What was the process there? So I think I played an
1: important role in the beginning of that process. Rewind back to a year ago before we'd done Basically any marketing. And I was sort of very involved in those initial conversations. Over time, I've become less and less involved in it. And, you know, I think that that's just, you know, mostly a matter of us, you know, somewhat successfully being able to transition a lot of this to other people uh, within the firm, which is great and, you know, important to have done for us. Uh, but I was, uh, I was super involved in, I think, like that, that, that very original build out. And in sort of ideating what we were doing and why.
0: So, what was the ethos of that original marketing mission? So,
1: I think it was basically like, I mean, why do any of it in the first place? You know, I think the biggest things that we were thinking about were, look, we're, I mean, we're really coming from behind on brand. No one knows. Circa a year ago, no one outside of the core crypto ecosystem, you know, knew who we were, and you can try and do a lot of things there, but a lot of the things that we thought about doing, you know, we kind of frankly felt like weren't really going to work super well unless we started to tell our story. And I think a lot of that is look like a lot of players that had, you know, a decade to build up their story of of who they were. We had had no time. Basically Mm -hmm. we didn't have the name recognition and it's just like, you know, way too easy for us to look basically like a crypto scam, you know, mm-hmm. and and so I think basically, you know, we just felt like we need to differentiate ourselves here and we need to, to start to get our name out. And so, you know, we what we thought about was basically, well, what could we do that? Like, what are the things in the world that like 10 million people know about through one means or another? And. There aren't that many things that that many people care about in the world. It's not like there are sort of like you know thousands of things that have that level of recognition. But I there are few. It's a few. It's actually I think a pretty small few, and that's really where all this started from. Is like what are those few, and what could we be doing to to reach out through those? And I think that you know the biggest things that we were thinking about there were well, what are the celebrities? What are the the games, what are the things that you have that level of recognition. I think the first thing that we came up with, and, and you know, before we started branching out, it was sort of narrowly, you know, at least much more narrowly tailored to this, was stadiums. You know, US stadiums of US football, uh, basketball, and baseball teams. And and so we spent a lot of time basically exploring that landscape pretty deeply.
0: Because people care about sports. That's kind of the underpinning drive behind this strategy. Get to where people are in their most passionate, exciting environments within Miami Heat Stadium is one example. But I also want to focus on some of the more like micro examples of how you guys have been successful at becoming a a darling, so to speak, of this weird crypto and non-world Like if you look at this picture that you guys tweeted out of the shoelace thing, I mean, it got 7,000 likes and thousands of retweets trying to find it so I can share it. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. People pay tons for this kind of marketing. And it makes me think like, to what degree is some of this planned in one way or another? Like, do you think about how you can sort of amplify Your own personality to be a meme to yield results like this? So, to a decent extent, like mostly
1: it sort of happens organically. And, you know, I think that a lot of this is that there's sort of this thought in media and PR that I think a lot of people, I don't know if they explicitly have it, but I think they at least implicitly have it that inauthenticity is the correct decision, that the way that you do well at PR. Is you go up there and you forget everything you know about yourself and you read some bullet points and I think that like you know the advice that you'll often get from people is like look don't say anything to reporters or something that sounds kind of like that you know I basically think that advice is garbage like I basically think that like you're not fooling anyone
0: but like, you do put your neck out a little bit and that can leave you vulnerable have you oh, ever absolutely maybe said something that you. Really wish you could have walked back on.
1: Oh, yeah. I've I've had some dumb tweets. I don't think they were horrific, but they were dumb. Like, I sort of tweeted them and like, oh, okay, yeah, that was kind of dumb. And I've gotten negative feedback on them. So this is like absolutely, you know, something that has burned me before. And, you know, partially, I know, and partially like, all right, so be it. Like, you take the good with the bad. Mm-hmm. And you make it, de- you know, you make a decision about whether, you know, about whether you think those are, on net good or bad for the business. And so I think that's, that's sort of a piece of it. I think another piece of it is basically like, you know, like where are you as a business, right? Like, are, are you trying to, to get more attention or less? And if you're just not trying to get any attention as a business, obviously that's going to make the case for sticking your neck out at all less compelling. But I think like one thing we've seen with Facebook or I guess meta now, I don't, like, they they have tried to keep their head down a lot. And I mean, I think inauthentic is almost like their brand strategy in a lot of ways, you know? Like, it's sort of that's what I think of very strongly when I sort of see how they interface with the press. I don't think it's gone super well for them.
0: So, to what degree do you want to be like the anti Zuck?
1: I think that like, I don't know that I like necessarily want to hem too closely to exactly the be anti that because. That's gonna almost certainly end up losing a losing a lot of upside because it's too focused on on the downside. But I definitely think it's like a very different approach from that. Is is I think what I'm aiming for.
0: Mm-hmm. We we kind of focused on on the meme aspect, and it sounds like some of it is maybe done on purpose. Was the shoelace thing? Is that just how you do your shoes, or? Oh,
1: that's just how it came. I mean that was
0: People speculated that you got that outfit that morning. That is basically correct.
1: I mean that's basically the story. <laughs> it's like I I was like, fuck, I need some new shoes. Like I don't I'm not supposed to show up in like slightly stained, you know, tennis shoes to a congressional hearing. So I got some new shoes and I like just didn't didn't bother like relacing them or anything like that. And, you know, for whatever reason that that's how they came laced and and then, you know, I got to the hearing and, and that's that's how my shoes were.
0: <laughs> so, I'm, gl- I'm glad we're kind of getting to the hearing because I, I do think this is an important component of the story. When we think about the earliest days of FTX and of, of Sam in crypto, like I said, you weren't necessarily this enthusiast, this devotee of the space. You just, I think, wanted to build a business that worked for customers and, you know, obviously to an extent make a, a reasonable fortune. But that's not exactly what happened to a degree. You are now one of the most recognizable faces and almost, you know, a now vanguard of the market. Do you like that? Did that? Did you have to get used to that and accustomed to it? Or was that actually part of the plan too?
1: So I think it felt somewhat natural is maybe the way I would frame it. Like, I think that it felt, I felt pretty comfortable doing it. I don't think that it was sort of always the plan or anything like that. But, you know, I think that it, it did like, and I think a lot of this, I, and I think, again, there are some parallels here where I think part of how this felt to me was sort of like, look, like, I think this space needs, like, sort of needs new public perception in a lot of ways. Like, I think, I don't think crypto has always put its best foot forward in front of anyone, but especially in front of regulators. And so I think a lot of this was basically feeling like, you know, sort of something similar to, to you know what we felt when we built FTX in the first place, of like, you know, here's a really important thing that just isn't being done super well right now, and maybe we could do it better.
0: If you think about the regulatory environment, right? Obviously the the bit license has been a scourge for many industry participants. Extremely expensive to get. Extremely expensive to operate yeah. in the state of New York. There's a patchwork of different regulations, and also like this overhanging narrative that I think for the first time was cracked significantly with this recent hearing, which is the fact that crypto is unregulated, that every market participant is not beholden to some sort of regulator, which obviously is not the case. And I think this was outlined by you and many of the other folks down there. And it seems like that message is finally sticking. I think when crypto was first kind of unleashed into the public policy eye, it was through the most One of the most hated or controversial companies in tech, and a firm that's very unpopular among the sort of upper echelons of DC. And now we kind of have a new opportunity. Back then, there were really no large crypto unicorns. Today, there are, at our most recent count, 70, right? So there's a lot of firepower, a lot of money that's at stake, and a lot of jobs. So I think the regulators and the policymakers have to be forced. rethink this but i will i will ask it you know you were a contributor to president biden that made a lot of headlines he obviously has his own internal working group on crypto overall it seems like and and this is the question that i have for you that the democrats seem a little more anti-crypto than maybe the republicans why do you think that is and and do you have an opinion on whether crypto itself has some sort of political, you know, or ideological position. You know, I know you're you're fairly more closely aligned with the left. Do you view crypto as not being in that category?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And I think what I'd say is like um, something like hopefully not um, is that I don't think that it needs to be politically aligned and I don't think it's good or healthy for it to be. Um, Like, I I think that in an ideal world, it would be totally bipartisan. And, you know, I sort of wish it were more like that today. I think that that like it's hopefully optimistically moving in that direction over time. And I think it is moving in that direction over time. And I think this hearing was 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 actually some movement in that direction. Um, I think that, you know, I was sort of that the hearing was more bipartisan and you know, more level headed than most that we would seen. And I was really happy about that fact. I think that like, the things that, that I guess I've been looking at the most on this front are, you know, like, you can view it through a partisan lens. And I think that to the extent that's the way it's being viewed, we've sort of lost. Like, I, I think that's not the healthy way for it to be viewed. Um, I think that the way that I would hope it would be viewed instead, is much more from the perspective of, it's going to be regulated it's going to be more regulated than it is today that's just a fact you know taking that as it is what can we do to have that regulation make the industry stronger and not weaker um and help you know protect consumers rather than you know accomplishing sort of any other arbitrary or you know r- rather than accomplishing sort of arbitrary goals that don't have much purpose and and i basically think that there is a lot of progress that could be made on that front and that that we could be you know we could end up in a much better position than we're in today because of that but but you know we probably have to be somewhat intentional about it if we're going to do that i think it's not exactly going to happen by accident um,
0: when you see someone like elizabeth warren the senator from massachusetts say defi is the most dangerous part of crypto or other politicians sort of taking these more aggressive stances on defi stable coins we've seen questions of their systemic risk, does that concern you and does it concern you to see pushback against products like Coinbase's Lend and how do you see it resolving?
1: Yeah, all of these are, you know, a lot of these look somewhat different in context than they do in the abstract. I think that like, and, and you know, one thing I think you could talk about, like, you know, looking at, you know, looking at, well, how does it feel to see, you know, someone like, like this worm pushing back a lot on this, but, but on the other hand, you know, I think that we saw, I mean, I think, you know, AOC's questions during the the hearing I I was at were among the better informed. I think they're really sharp. I think they're productive. And I think you like responded swiftly and intelligently in a a back and forth on them. And and overall, I think it was just like, super productive in a lot of ways. And and I think that that maybe cuts against a little bit the narrative that is just a super partisan thing. And then I think, you know, Yeah, I I think a lot of this, it just like the context here is super fucking important. And, you know, this is all not just a theoretical thing. And and it often looks different in practice than it does in theory. And I think that like when you look at, you know, worries about stable coins, I think those are completely reasonable worries for people Mm -hmm. to have. And I think it frankly would be a little bit weird if you weren't at all worried about that. I think that like these are, you know, large financial instruments, which are, not super well understood. They're not super transparent in some cases. And I think it's like healthy for regulators to be looking at that. I, I think the big thing that I would say is cool. You know, that's the perspective you're coming from here. Which I think is, is completely reasonable. Let's do something concrete to address that, right? Like what is the worry here? The worry with stable points, I mean, I think the biggest one by far is what if they weren't fact, as I said they were, right? What if a stablecoin says that it is backed one to one by the dollar, but instead it's a, it becomes a trillion dollar stablecoin with a billion dollars of reserves, where it's like ninety nine point nine percent unbacked? That'd be pretty bad. Yeah. Um, and so, what do you do about that? You know, you could you could sort of like just sort grandstand and be like, ah, oh, stablecoins they're so scary, or you could like create a regulatory framework whereby stablecoins in the U.S. Have to like have daily attestations of exactly what their reserves were, have periodic audits to confirm that their attestations are, are correct, and you know have have federal oversight of that. And I kind of think that that alone just like kind of addresses the concerns. Like I, I don't know that I want to say like there are no concerns left, but I feel like that kind of addresses 80% of them or something. And that it does so at relatively little cost. Um, like I don't think that stunts the crypto industry to have that, right? Like Half of all stablecoins are already doing something, which is basically that. And so I think on a lot of these things, like it's not a question of regulation versus no regulation, or at least it shouldn't be. I think it should just be a question of like, what are the things that need regulation? What are the things that need addressing? And what can we do to address them in a healthy manner? And and that's what I, I sort of like really hope that we start focusing on more, on both sides. And you know I'm optimistic that with that framework, I mean I think you know Alkin who is a Democratic representative from, from Colorado, like during the, the hearing, just sort of said like, all right, like, well, why don't we just, like, this sounds productive. Seems like everyone, like every representative and every industry representative on the panel agree that that framework would be healthy and productive and protective to have. Why don't we just fucking do it, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I think that that's that sort of just like, I was really, really encouraged by, I think that response, you know, in particular as like, you know, all right, there are things that we should make better. Let's go make them better. And I think that when viewed from that lens, a lot of the partisanness of this starts to drop off and seem a lot less relevant or compelling.
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening to part one of our season finale episode featuring FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried. For more from our conversation with Bankman-Fried, stay tuned for part two coming soon.